Hi, and welcome to Listening to Leaders. This is Nathan Harrington, and I am thrilled to have you here. Wow, y'all, this is my first episode, and I can't believe it's happening. I am finally doing this, y'all, and I think you're really going to love it. There is a unique type of leadership emerging in the world, and I keep seeing more and more examples of it. Leaders that are leading from their hearts. Leaders who are actively developing their emotional intelligence, who are empowering their people as whole humans, who are causing deep human connection, and really making a positive impact in the world. Now, truly being this type of leader can take something. It takes radical commitment, vision, a little bit, maybe a lot of failure, and a ton of courage. What's more, leadership in general, but especially this type of leadership, can be extremely lonely. So I wanted to create a platform where leaders could hear stories from the trenches, stories from leaders who are on this journey, learn from their life lessons, and feel connected really to a bigger sense of humanity. So that's what this is all about. Each episode, I'll bring you a different leader across many different sectors and levels of experience that you can learn from. My first guest is an author, a leadership coach, a thought leader, and an entrepreneur, and perhaps most importantly, my dad. (laughs) That's right. We're setting the bar very high with this first guest, Jim Harrington. My dad, well, he's co-authored three books and has a fourth one on the way. He started several nonprofit organizations and is currently rocking it with the coaching and consulting company that he co-founded. It's called The Leader's Journey, and he co-founded it with another amazing leader, the one and only Trisha Taylor. With almost 50 years of leadership experience, he has more than a story or two to share about the powerful, inspiring, and sometimes painful lessons of growing into the seasoned leader that he is today. We had a great conversation on the importance of listening, and I think you're really going to love it. Please enjoy Jim Harrington. Yeah, well, so first of all, just thanks for being here. Yeah, I'm so honored to get to do this with you. Yeah, I will tell you, I said to my, I just had coffee with a friend and I was like, I'm excited, nervous, excited. (laughs) (laughs) And let me just like introduce that this is the first episode of listening to leaders Mm -hmm. and it's listening. And then the word to is in parentheses. So it's like listening leaders and listening to leaders. Mm -hmm. See what Mm -hmm. I did there? Okay. So what's that? Clever. Thank you. Yeah. (laughs) So you want to just start by sort of introducing yourself, like saying anything about your background that you want to, you want to share? Yeah, so I'm like the, the the biography is that I grew up in Northeast Louisiana and did college work at the university, graduated from the University of Arkansas and Southwestern Seminary in Fort Worth, and then did a doctoral degree at Houston Graduate School of Theology. I've been married for 50 years to the woman who was born three months before me, and her parents and our parents were my parents were our were really good friends, uh-huh. known her all my life. Uh, I've worked all my life in the in the nonprofit world, churches and church and organi- church organizations, until the last five years, where I've had my own private uh, coaching business that I do with my partner Tricia Taylor. Mm-hmm. 
And Betty and I have five kids and six grandkids mm-hmm. who we adore. Mm-hmm. And and I think of myself as a kind of entrepreneur. I have there like there are four different communities that are in existence today. A group called Mission Houston that mm-hmm. became Houston Responds. If somebody were looking for it on the website, the there's a group out there called Faith Walking. There's a group out there called Churches Learning Change. Mm-hmm. And then there's this community of people around the leader's journey, which is mm-hmm. what I'm an author. I've written, I've co-authored three books and have a fourth one that we're almost done with, uh-huh. uh, uh, each time co-authored with someone. And and the way that I think of the work that I've done is that I've I've been really interested from for a long, long time in what effective strategies for personal change and fe- effective strategies for organizational change mm-hmm. and how those two intersect and interact mm-hmm. and influence one with one another. Mm-hmm. And cool. that's what all of our books are about and all of the work that we do is about. Do you have a title for this upcoming one? No, the 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 working title is a primer for spiritual formation. Okay, which is a spiritual formation is the the work of the inner life, but emotions, right? Thinking, feeling, yeah, volition, yeah. will, yeah. And we're certain that a publisher will, our publisher is going to name it something else. So okay, <laughs> just a working title. Oh, you right don't now. get to choose. Like you don't. Oh, I mean, I'll, you probably have a say, but you well, you in every book that we've written, we've offered a title, and our publishers have said. We don't like that title. And then they've offered like three or four or five uh-huh. uh, options, and we get, and to, choose get to choose from those from options. One. Yeah, right. Got it. Right. Okay. Okay, cool. Yep. Well, anything uh, else you want to say about your background? Uh, I have this amazing son named Nathan. He has his own <laughs> coaching business. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. Um, you know, there's the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Yep. And in this case, the apple For fell sure. like <laughs> almost right next to it. So. Exactly. And cool. that's a really fun part of having an adult son is like I love all my children I'm proud of all my children yeah it's really fun that when we're together we're often talking business yeah that we're both working on and that's yeah. a lot of fun yeah yeah and kind of like all the different aspects of business right yes. like from the services that we provide to yep. actually being a business person right <laughs> so that's cool okay so you didn't say this but one of the things that you do and we can plug this a little bit better later is that you, you also have a podcast, which I have to confess, actually, I'd never listened to yeah. until I started pre- preparing for this. Yeah. And um, it's kind of like, um, do you know who Kristen Bell is? Yes. She's the actress who uh-huh. um, she is one of the princesses in Frozen. Right. And she has apparently like a seven-year-old and a nine-year-old little girl. And they may have never seen Frozen, like they and or if they have, like they really don't care about it at all. Right, right, right. <laughs> so I feel like it's kind of like that. But so I listen, I've listened to three episodes, and it's really good. It's really, really good. So good work Thanks. on that. And so, do you have any tips? Do you have any advice? Like I said, I'm like a little, like I'm tips about podcasts. Yeah, about Asking. podcasting. Like how to have it be good. Yeah, I don't know if I do or not. Uh, so what I love about our podcast is it's not just me talking. Mm-hmm. It's Trish and I, and we 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 have a script for the intro and the outro, and everything else is is there's you know here, there's a topic and there's five or six questions, and I think what people I think there's two things people give us a lot of feedback about. One is it feels really authentic, like it feels like a conversation, mm-hmm. not like some scripted you know yeah. thing that we're doing. Yeah. The other thing that they like is the male female voice mm-hmm. that the different approaches. That, that sometimes that 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 takes in in 2023 we're doing a whole year on practices for growing emotional maturity oh cool and we're 
for the first time ever, the podcast is maybe five years old, and for the first time ever, we're going to have a, a guest every time who, oh, nice. who joins us. Yeah, okay, so that'll like now become like the format of the exactly, show, or at, at least, least for the next year. year. Yeah, cool. exactly. Yeah, Very cool. And we, you know, we started wondering if anybody would be interested in listening to this, uh-huh. and we have a couple of thousand folks who listen to it every uh, wow. every, every week. And, wow. Okay. Uh, w- with our producer, we're working on uh, trying to double that over the next two years, and so yeah, it's been lots of fun. Very cool. Yeah. Very cool. Okay. Well, so I, like I told you the other day, a part of what I want from this podcast for the listener, mm-hmm. you know, in a way, this is a, a podcast for leaders about leaders, right? right? And, right. Um, you know, leadership can be, there can be a lonely aspect to that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, if you don't set yourself up well, you might spend a lot of your time in your head and, you know, not hearing other people's stories and like that. And so a part of what I want this to be is I think in AA, they say to share your experience, hope Mm -hmm. and strength (laughs) is to be, you know, a resource in that way for people that, you know, may provide some specific tools or something like that, but but more than anything else, just to know what it's like for a real human to be in mm-hmm. the trenches in that way. So mm-hmm. I just want to say that to kind of shape our conversation. So given that, what do you want to share about your leadership journey? <laughs> <laughs> That's well, a as, big question. Yeah, as you were talking, I was thinking almost everything I know about leadership, I learned through failure. Yeah. Right. Right. And uh, I wish that it wasn't true. And people who are listening to the podcast are maybe saying, no, that's not true. But uh, (laughs) in my experience and in the experience that I have with other leaders, probably two things that come to mind immediately. One of them is that there is, seems to me to be a correlation between self-awareness and Mm -hmm. leadership effectiveness. In the emotional intelligence world, they would talk about their four, like if you think about Four window panes, mm-hmm. two on top of uh, of two at the bottom two is I know what I'm feeling mm-hmm. and I can manage my emotions in an effective way. Mm-hmm. And on the top two are I know how my behavior impacts other people mm-hmm. and I can manage myself with uh, with them. Okay. And I was clueless. I have two stories that I tell pretty regularly. I was clueless about how my behavior impacted other people. I had a lot to learn about managing my own behavior. I grew up in a family where uh, you know emotions were not acceptable, both because mostly my parents and I love my parents and they're really good people, but they, they mostly were about managing behavior. And so I, as an adult, I had to learn to manage my own, to know my own feelings. Like the, mm. I was seeing a therapist in my early twenties and I had developed some rapport with him and been there three, four, five times. And I went in one day and I said, Bleh! I was just all upset about something that happened <laughs> Wait, at work. Can you say that again? <laughs> I, don't, I don't think people quite got that. <laughs> and he, he listened really uh, gently. And then he looked at me and he said, so how do you feel about that? Uh, and I answered the question with what I thought. And he asked the question a second time. He asked the question a third time. And we asked the question a third time. I said, obviously, I don't know what I feel mm-hmm. because I've answered the question three times and you keep telling me that's not the right answer. Right, right. And then he said, no, no worries. He said, so like, think about that. We would categorize, categorize feelings as positive or negative. Mm-hmm. And then within the negative, the kind of the primary colors of feelings are mad, sad, glad, and scared. Mm-hmm. 
And I said, oh, okay. So that gives me some language. And so then we spent several months in the in the in the therapy conversations where I would talk about what was going on, mm-hmm. and then he would ask what I was feeling, and I would go, okay, well, I know it's not glad, and then we would begin to explore. So you, maybe I'm angry. Well, okay, so what do you think you might be angry about? Or maybe mm-hmm. I'm scared. What, you know? And he would just explore that with me. And so I one day I came in. He said, you've gotten really good at at thinking about your feelings. Mm-hmm. And then he said, but where the real power is, is in learning to feel your feelings. Mm-hmm. And it was like, holy moly, uh-huh. I'm not sure I want to do that. <laughs> yeah. And so then that was kind of the next stage of development where in conversations, he, he taught me to be, be attuned to my body. I learned that when I was mad, my chest burned. And when I was scared, I had a knot in the pit of my stomach. And, and with both of them, my shoulders tightened up and I, I would clench my fist. And I just learned to pay attention to all of that. And so there was that. There was this whole learning experience of learning to know what I was feeling and and find ways to offload, to, to vent those feelings in appropriate ways so that they didn't interfere with the relationship. Mm-hmm. And that was probably the first 10 years of my, my adult leadership journey was mm-hmm. just learning that. Which, yeah. to say, started fairly young, right? I was about 24. Yeah. yeah 24, yeah. 25. I was, you... I married young, mm-hmm. had a, a, both a, uh, some conflict in marriage and some conflict at work. Mm-hmm. I had a, like, I'll tell too many stories because I've got a story for everything. <laughs> you've got but, several uh, years. Yeah. Ago. So uh, the, the thing that got me into therapy was that the, the pastor, the senior pastor that I was working with called a Saturday morning meeting and I was just pissed off that we were meeting on Saturday morning. Oh, how dare he? Yeah. Right. Yeah. And somewhere in the meeting, my anger boiled over. There were six of us sitting around a round table. I shoved the table. Coffee went flying everywhere. I stood up and stuck my finger in his nose and said, you can take this job and stick it up your ass. I'm going home. <laughs> Got it. I tell that story to, past, to other pastors, and, and I think a part of them are just flabbergasted that I would do that. And a part of them were thinking, I wish I had the courage to do that. Did to you do <laughs> Well, here was the transformative experience. So mm-hmm. on Saturday night, I didn't sleep. Sunday night, I didn't sleep. Monday, I went to the staff meeting because I got paid to be there, and he met me at the door. Mm. And he, Wait, so to be clear, on Saturday for you, had you quit? No, no, no. That I, wasn't I, your resignation. I just walked out. Right? Okay, I walked right. out. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> Sunday, we the church was big enough that we didn't like have to interact with each other. Sunday night, I didn't sleep. I'm pretty sure when I go in Monday, I'm going to get fired. Sure. Okay. I go in. He meets me at the door. He says, we've got to talk about what happened on, on Saturday. I said, no, I know. Let's get it over with. And then he said, come on, let's go into my office. We sat down in two opposing love seats, and, and the first words out of his mouth were, you're one of the finest young pastors I've ever worked with. Mm-hmm. And then he said, and you've got some stuff going on in you that if you don't figure it out, you're never going to live into all of your potential. Mm-hmm. And then he said words that I will never forget. I, like you, that was a little disorienting <laughs> for him to do that. It's like, I think I'm going to get fired. And he, what? You're being nice to me. Right, what is right, this? Right, right, I'm sure this is right. going to be a punishment conversation. <laughs> right. There's another, the, the other <laughs> shoe's going to fall. He said, if you're going to work here, if you're going to keep working here, you're going to go see Joe. I've got made you an appointment tomorrow afternoon at two o'clock, and you're going to see Joe until Joe says you don't have to see him anymore. <laughs> got it. Got it. I'm all on. I'm all uh-huh. in as long as I don't lose my job. And so for about 18 months, I saw Joe almost every week. And all of that that I was just describing to you about learning to see and manage my feelings. And then there's another. So go back to the four pains. I know my feelings. I manage them. I know my, how my feelings impact other people, and I manage that. 
a couple of three years down the road, it's actually in a different church that I'm in now. And the matriarch of the church is a 60-year-old woman who's the head of general dynamics, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, the head of HR at general dynamics. She's like everybody's grandmother. She's, you know, she's five feet tall and five feet around and just a gentle, loving soul who uh, everybody loves. And she invited me to go to coffee, and she spent the first, like, 30 minutes telling me what an amazing leader I was and how much she appreciated all the stuff that I was, you know, doing in the church. And mm. just uh, there was, a, you know, like a very encouraging conversation. And then about 30 minutes in, she said, you know, there's really only one thing that if I were going to help you improve your work that I would do. Yeah. And she said, you don't always know how your behavior impacts other people. And she said, I think it's because you don't listen well. And I was a little defensive, but not out of the, you know, not like she didn't, I didn't feel attacked by her very, very gentle kind of spirit. She, she said, and part of what makes me know this is that the other day I saw you do something that really ruffled Mike's feelings. Mike was another guy in our, in our organization. And she said, and, and he said, hey, Harrington, don't do that. When you do that, that hurts. Some version of that. And when he said that, you responded really appropriately, like, oh, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to do that. Mm. And it was, she said, but I've watched in other cases where you've offended people or you've alienated people or mm. you've scared people mm. and they just get quiet. They mm. don't, you know, they go away or they, they do whatever it is that they do. Mm. And that was the beginning for me of, of learning to be aware that my behavior can have an impact on other people that I'm totally unaware of and that it influences the relationship. It influences my ability to influence. Mm-hmm. It influences everything that goes on. And so learning to see that and then learning to manage that has, again, been a lifelong journey. Mm-hmm. But you put those two things together, learning to know and manage my own feelings and learning to know how I, my behavior impacts other people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I have a thousand stories that I could tell about where I did that bad poorly. Uh-huh. And in uh, the feedback grew my capacity to be able to see. Mm. It's so interesting that a human being has to learn that. Yeah. Yeah. Sucks. <laughs> <laughs> I want to read a book. Right. 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 And that there's, yeah, like you just pointed to is like you have to learn that like on the court of your life. Yeah, there's no, exactly. there's no shortcuts to that. One of the things that I can look back and see is both with this pastor that I described and this woman who is the matriarch of the church, what I can see is that I had really good people who exactly on, the, on the one hand yeah. were willing to give me the feedback mm-hmm. and on the other hand did it in a way that wasn't judgmental or shaming. It wasn't like mm-hmm. you're a bad person and stop doing what you do, but it's like you're a really good leader. Yeah. And this is something that you don't see that you need to see. Yeah. I, I mean, they bo- the thing that sticks out to me is they both really saw you. Yeah. yeah. Like they saw you. They saw like the best version of you and were able to, in the way they communicated, yeah. sort of set the, the garbage of your behavior yeah. aside and then speak to it. Yeah. Yep. It's really cool. Yeah. And that last, the last comment reminds me, I'm, this is like, Two years ago, I'm with my coach, and I'm talking about how impatient I am with somebody who's in my circle of influence. 
And she said, well, you know, Jim, if you want to grow your patience, what you need to do is go hang out with people who make you impatient. <laughs> and I said, well, Virginia, wait, 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 you've misunderstood me. I'm looking for a book to read. I, right. I don't actually want to experience with this. <laughs> what she was saying was you learn from experience. And that's really the only way you learn. We, we use a, a, a thing called information practice reflection. Mm -hmm. So the information okay. is really, really important, but you've got to go practice. Mm -hmm. And if you're not practicing like early on, I, I'm a vociferous reader and I can talk about a lot of things that I read. Yeah. But where the skill comes from practice, and then it, I think it's Thomas Dewey, he said, we don't learn from experience, but we learn from reflecting on our experience. Yes. And so having a coach or a spiritual director or a mentor or just a trustworthy friend mm -hmm. where you can, in a safe environment, say, this is how that went. This is what I experienced. This is where I got triggered. This is what mm -hmm. I said that I wish I hadn't said, or this is what I didn't say that I wish I had said. Mm -hmm. All of those things are so valuable in the learning process and to have people that you can do that with mm. is just invaluable. Yeah. So developing this type of emotional awareness, this set of skills in a way is just useful for any human being. Right. Exactly. Right? If exactly. you want to have any modicum of happiness in your life, like <laughs> it's useful to, to know how you're feeling and have an awareness of how that impacts mm. other people. Um, why, it's for me, it's kind of seems like it's a non-negotiable for a leader. Mm -hmm. If you want to be the type of leader that fill in the blank, right? right? But why is that um, essential? Well, <laughs> the first thought that comes to mind is because the research says it is. Uh -huh. <laughs> uh, Daniel Goldman wrote the book uh, on emotional intelligence, yeah. I think in 1999 or 2000. And it was a research-based book where he says it more than strategy, more than technology, more than personality, that emotional intelligence is the critical factor in effective leadership. And mm. that was in 2000. And since then, you know, there's been lots and lots of stuff that's been written. I get a weekly newsletter from Harvard Business Review where they'll give you four or five articles to read and you can pick and choose. And every week there is a motion, at least one article on emotional intelligence, how you know it, how you grow it, how you do it, why mm. it's important, mm. all that kind of stuff. My second answer to the question grows out of some different work that I've done organizationally. So there's a guy named Peter Singe, S-E-N-G-E, mm -hmm. who about the time that I moved into my very first leadership, a senior leadership role, where I was exec executive director of a really large nonprofit here in the city. And I read his book at about the time that this was going on. And it was an invaluable book. It's called The Fifth Discipline, The Art and Practice of the Learning Organization. Okay. Well, by the way, we'll, we're going to put in the show notes, so any, show notes any of the books that Great. you or Great. podcasts that you yeah, reference yeah. Great. for people. So he wrote that book. And what he the, the thesis of the book was that it, the pace of change is so rapid today. Now, remember, this is in 2000. Think about how much the pace of change has changed. Oh my gosh, yeah. The pace of change is so rapid that the organizations that are going to thrive in the 21st century, the organizations that learn to learn collectively and collaboratively the fastest. Mm -hmm. And then he proposed five learning disciplines that could be taught and could be mastered within an organization. Okay. And the fifth one is systems thinking, which is the, the art and practice of the learning organization. Mm -hmm. the, the fifth discipline is systems thinking. And one of the things that he, that book probably of all the books that I've read from the perspective of organizational change has impacted like it, when I think about mental models and beliefs and assumptions that I hold mm -hmm. about organizational change, that book shaped so much of how I see the mm, world. Mm. And one of the things that he did was this continuum of commitment. It is a quote that we've got in our book, our most recent book, that says, very few people have ever seen 
shared commitment, deep commitment to a shared vision. Mm. That what mostly what we see is formal compliance to one person's vision. Oh, say that again. <laughs> we rarely see really deep commitment, a shared deep commitment to a shared vision. Mm. What we've done is got we've got formal compliance to one person's yeah, vision, and he great. does this continuum where he says, "So you're a leader, and you're trying to mobilize people around a shared vision, and there are possible responses. One response is non-compliance. I'm not going to do this. Right." One response is grudging compliance. I'm going to do this, but I think this is stupid, and I'm going to, you know, I'm going to complain and fuss at every step along the way. But I don't want to get kicked out of the organization. The, further down the continuum is formal compliance, which is where he says most of us get. And with formal compliance, it's like, okay, I, I've got a job here. I see what you want. I'm yours for in a volunteer organization two hours a week, or as a paid organization for eight hours a day. And tell me what you want me to do, and I'll do what you want me to do. But deep commitment is when there is a shared vision that I have something invested deeply, like the vision that you're after is in some ways a vision that I'm after. And so deep commitment is I'm in. I, I may not sit in the same chair that you're in, but I'm solving the problems. I'm trying to identify what the obstacles are. I'm working really hard to clarify where we're going. The language we use in our organization is even if I'm not the owner, I act like an owner. Mm -hmm. I have that level of commitment. Yeah. And back to the question, why is this so important? We start our third book, The Leader's Journey, with in the very first paragraph, it asks the question, have you ever known the right thing to do but been unable to do the right thing? Mm -hmm. And, of course, the answer everybody gives to that is, heck yeah, yeah, of course. <laughs> and when the, you've got both of those things going on, one is I know the right thing to do, but what's happened is my emotions have gotten stirred up. Mm -hmm. I feel resistant. I feel angry. Mm -hmm. I think that this is not going to take us where we need to go, mm -hmm. but you're the boss, and so I have to do this. Mm -hmm. And and so, okay, I'm going to do it, but I'm not going to do it, you know, with the kind of enthusiasm and commitment, with the kind of removing obstacles and all that kind of stuff. And so being able to see that and know that and name that. And so if I'm the leader, I want to be able to see in you there when there's something about your emotional response that says to me, you're not a deep commitment. Like, I need to know that. Mm. I want to know. What's going on? How did that happen? Did I did I lead in a way that asked for formal compliance? Mm -hmm. You know, maybe in the conversation where we we're trying to decide where to go, we came to a fork in the road, and I said, "This is what I think we ought to do." And because that stirred up, you know, like I'm afraid if I say no, I think that's a bad idea. That right. and so all of that, like that's a complicated answer to your question. But the one other thing that I would say is that most of us in leadership have been trained to think well, like in our school, we've learned to, you know, if, if I think of our internal life as having four subsystems that make a whole. And so there's my thinking processes, my feeling processes, my will, my volition, mm -hmm. and my passion. What is mm -hmm. it that really lights me up? Mm -hmm. And most of us have had some training with some of those, hmm. but it's not uncommon for a young adult to come to adult life. It, I, I would say it this way. It's pretty rare for a young adult to come to life having grown up in a context and environment where they got trained to manage their emotions in a healthy kind of way. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And so it's not like there's anything wrong with you if you don't know how to do this. Mm. It's like, okay, welcome to being a, a young adult human. Yeah. And so you just have to take that on as a learning assignment for yourself. Yeah. I think it's worth underlining so the 
model for the type of organization that you're describing mm -hmm. called shared commitment to a vision that mm -hmm. you started off by saying like most people have never experienced. Right. I think it's worth underlining the most people have never experienced right, that before. Right. That really is, I think, an, like an ex extraordinary is beyond ordinary, <laughs> right? Like that that really is an extraordinary intention and an extraordinary thing to take on. So yeah. you do kind of have to want that in right. some way, right? You have to want that and you have to be willing to learn how to get that. Yeah. I mean, I think the natural human instinct is I'm the leader and this is where we're going to go. And I really want to, you know, collaborate and get along. But anytime there's a conflict and I get stirred up, there are just some natural responses to I'm the boss and let's just get this done. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And nobody wakes up in the morning and says, that's what I'm going to do. But when when our emotions get stirred up, unless we've got some real skills around managing our emotions, mm -hmm. the natural defensive response. And, you know, there's two or three things that I would say about that. One is that Singay's work, he called that the learning organization. In mm -hmm. 2000, that was a new idea. Mm -hmm. You can Google that today and you'll get millions of hits. Mm -hmm. Like it is the – and then I think the second thing I'd say about it is with the two youngest adult generations mm – -hmm. Like in my generation, it, people began to think about collaboration. But with the generations below me, people are not hardly going to work in a context where collaboration and working towards shared vision mm. is not. So more and more it's becoming a common expectation is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's like emerged as yeah. a – we don't want to work lifetime, if, Yeah, right. we don't yeah. want to work if it's not that. Yeah, exactly. What do you – so – how do I want to ask this? Like I hear in what you're saying, uh, an emerging connection to family systems theory. Mm -hmm. uh, that's your domain <laughs> of expertise, of right? About the way, sort of the default ways that leaders respond when things aren't going their way. You yeah. know, the, the, well, something's, you know, something happens and then a leader goes, well, no, this is just how this is going to go. Like, yeah. how does that connect to, Yeah, can you kind of spell that out for people? Well, so again, Peter Gay introduced me to the distinction between. <laughs> is he like your best friend or something? Ah. <laughs> I'm telling you, so much of what I know. About, there, there are a couple of other guys, but he's one of them. He introduced me to the idea, to the distinction between cause and effect thinking and systems thinking. Okay. And in cause and effect, the two big, like two, if we're going to do two big ideas about that, one of them is in cause and effect thinking, and by the way, this is the way science says that the human brain works. Like mm -hmm. by default, this is what we do. Yeah. And this is what I got taught as a young leader. Mm -hmm. Well, the cause and effect thinking says, okay, I'm in charge of the organization or the family or the, you know, the company, whatever it is. And we've got a goal that we're after, something we're trying to accomplish, and we have a breakdown or we don't reach our goals. And so what we do is we survey the landscape and we say, what's wrong? Where's the problem? And then what we do is we – so first of all, the problem is out there. Yep. And secondly, what we do is we go to work to fix that problem. That's cause and effect thinking. Okay. Systems thinking says that any result that – even a two-person system like a marriage, mm -hmm. any result that a system is giving, everyone is contributing to that. Yeah that result. And you have way more leverage in looking at what you're contributing and changing yourself than you do in looking at what someone else is contributing or not contributing and trying to change them. I mean, I would invite your listeners to think, do you have any experience where you've actually gotten worked on trying to change someone else and they changed. Mm -hmm. Now, tie that back to the compliance or deep commitment conversation. You can get people to comply all day long. Uh -huh. Use your authority in, in a certain way and uh -huh. you can get people to comply. 
Okay, but hold on, hold on. What what if what if I mean this I'm speaking on behalf of the listener, right? Is what if they really are the problem? Well, so, so what I'm not saying in that is that they're not contributing. Okay, good. Thanks. But what I am saying is I'm contributing and I have way more control over that now. And so what I do is I look at how to change my behavior. Mm-hmm. And I look at it really practically. What, what am I doing or not doing? Mm-hmm. What am I saying or not saying? Mm-hmm. Or how am I saying what I'm saying mm-hmm. that gets it heard or not heard? And so uh, w- w- with your mom and I and mm-hmm. really different styles of learning and leadership, for me as an Enneagram 8, I don't know if that means anything to your listeners, but as an Enneagram 8, mm-hmm. I am really direct, I'm really assertive, I say what there is to say, and often offend people and don't realize that I've offended them. Mm -hmm. And so when I'm looking at what am I contributing, often it's what am I saying or doing, or how am I saying it, that I need to look at and work on changing. With your mom, who is more of an Enneagram 9 and who's a peacekeeper and wants everything to be smooth and relationships to work, for her it's often what she's not saying or not doing Mm. that's contributing. And so in our marriage, I had to learn to talk slower, to talk more softly, to give space between I'd say something and give her an opportunity to, like, think and process and decide what she was going to say and how she was going to have courage to say it. And with her, she had to learn to be more assertive, Mm -hmm. to say things that she was thinking and feeling like, you know, I'd say, let's go do this. And she would think, that's a really bad idea, but I don't want him to be unhappy with me. So I'm just not going to say that. I'm going to find a way to go along. And so as is often the case with me, I get to talking about this stuff and I lose my train of thought. (laughs) So uh, the question I was is like, oh, yeah, yeah. asked is like, what if they really are the problem? Yeah. And I mean, not to boil it down to just a big cliche, but it really does always take two to tango. It always does. It always does. And I mean, you have to ask and answer for yourself the question, do, do I think I can work on changing another person and get them to deep commitment? And my answer to that is just... 40 years of experience, an unequivocal no. And particularly if you're in the power position, mm-hmm. if you're the owner or the, you know, the, the leader, when you start saying you're the problem and I want you to change your behavior. Now, if you want to, maybe later we can talk about how you give feedback, which I think is a, also an important kind of deal. Mm-hmm. But, but even in the way you give feedback, right? As an Enneagram mate, I'm really direct. I say it really assertively. I say it like this is the truth and nothing else is. I've had to learn how to give feedback to somebody else who's contributing to the problem in a way that allows them to be able to hear that. Yeah. And so, yeah, yeah, I would say all of that. So the, the so question started with family theory. systems. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so Singay introduced me to family systems and, um, Actually, Singay introduced me to systems thinking, organizational systems thinking. And then there was an experience that I had that led me to the family system stuff. We did a series of pilot projects with the churches that I was working with. Mm-hmm. And the organization we worked with had a 50-year track record when they called me to be the leader, where those churches were becoming a smaller and smaller percentage of the population in Harris County. Mm-hmm. And so 50 years of, of decline, mm-hmm. and we began we did begin to do a series of pilot projects to see if we could help them reverse those trends. And the primary thing that we worked on was, at that point in time, congregations across the country were kind of cookie-cuttered. No matter where you went, it looked the same way. National organizations were telling the local guys what to do, providing programs and priorities, and they were doing those. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what we began to say was, man, the city is too complex. You know, what's happening in the Fifth Ward and what's happening in Katy, what's happening in 
West U and what's happening in in Sugarland are just different things. And so churches need to be able to develop strategic plans for their unique context and setting. We did three different pilot projects over about a two-year period of time, and we got really good results as long as our team was involved. But when our team dropped out of the process, when we said, we finished the work, now you you implement your plan, either the, the the process would just it would become a plan that sat on a shelf somewhere right. or life threatening conflict would emerge hmm. and just being curious and saying well so what we were doing seemed to be so helpful and this happened what did this mean and it was in a series of conversations with my partner Tricia Taylor mm-hmm. who's my current business partner and and co-author Robert Creech mm-hmm. who's one of the smartest guys that I've ever known mm-hmm. one day we were in a conversation where we were saying what does that mean and Robert says have you ever read any family systems theory. Mm, mm. And I said, well, when I was in seminary, there was one book that I read, mm. but but it was just given as one option of, um, among 20 or 25. Mm. And, and so, no. And so we began to read Murray Bowen, mm. who is the founder and author of the whole family systems work. When did Robert first sort of introduce this idea? Like, when did this... This would have been in about 1994 or 95. Okay, so quite a while ago. Yeah, and so we and we published our book, The Leader's Journey, in 2003. So I, so I had about a six- or seven-year journey where I was reading Murray Bowen and Edwin Friedman and Roberta Gilbert, people mm-hmm. who are like the godmothers and godfathers of, the, of, the, of that movement. Murray Bowen was a psychiatrist who was the first person to say, I don't know if this makes sense, but... But he began to say, in all work that we do to try to help human beings, counseling, psychiatry, that kind of thing, we think of the individual as the molecule of human existence. Mm-hmm. And he worked on the theory that the, the unit, the family, the company, the unit was the molecule of human existence. Yeah. Now, here's what that means. When you think the individual is the molecule of human existence, when there's a presenting problem, somebody acts out, somebody's not functioning the way they ought to do, the one with the presenting problem needs to be brought out of the unit and gotten to a psychiatrist or a counselor. Right. And, or fired. Or fired, yeah. right. Mm. And and, and you, you work to solve that individual problem. Mm-hmm. But in family systems theory and Bowen theory, what they say is, no, 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 it is the, it's the family that's the unit and that the one who's acting out is symptomatic of anxiety that's in the system. And so they talk about two kinds of anxiety, uh, acute anxiety. So if I point a gun at you, your brain goes to autopilot. I've got to just do whatever I've got to do to get out of here. But chronic anxiety is anxiety that you experience where you feel like there's a threat. Your body does all the things that it does in acute anxiety. It bypasses the prefrontal cortex. It moves to an automatic response Mm -hmm. to whatever that is. And uh, the family systems theory is that chronic anxiety is contagious in any group. And so if you've got a presenting problem, an individual is acting out, where the real leverage is, is to ask, so where is the anxiety in the system? And the people with the most emotional maturity are going to have the most access to engaging in behavior that turns the volume on the anxiety Anxiety down. down. Uh And that when you turn the volume on the anxiety down, that then the symptoms begin to go away. Uh And so in 95, 96, 97, I began to read that. I began to experiment with that. I began to experiment with that in my own life. And more and more, I came to a belief that, that this is the way human beings work. Mm. That this wasn't, it wasn't a theological framework. It wasn't a, 
it was a scientific framework yeah. it really said this is the way that human beings function and now you know 20 years into that journey it's the way i see the world yeah yeah yeah. you've just seen it play out over and over, over and again over and over like, again. it can't be any other way yeah. yeah yeah and with my clients the more i do this the more i have people uh, you know say to me man i've been i mean the, the, some version of what i'm about to say uh-huh. i've been doing the cause and effect thing for 20 years yeah. and all of a sudden focusing on me and my part and changing my behavior is just opened up a whole new realm of possibility. Mm. And one guy said to me, I feel hopeful for the first time in a long time. Oh, and then wow. he teared up and he said, do you realize how valuable hope is? <laughs> <laughs> just a little hope. Just a little hope is really, really valuable for wow. sure. Wow. Yeah. It's awesome. Yeah. So I, I talked about Peterson Gay and I talked about mm-hmm. Murray Bowen. Mm-hmm. And what I would say to leaders is to have a conversation about mental models. Mm-hmm. If that's new language to you, a mental model is a set of beliefs and assumptions that how the world works and how to take effective action in the world. Mm-hmm. And here's the distinction I want to make. An awful lot of what's out there related to leadership development is about techniques. Mm-hmm. I won't call any names of people who peddle techniques, but the people make a lot of money about that. Mm. And what a mental model is, 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 is the beliefs and assumptions that you hold about how the world works. And if you have a belief and assumption that I can go to a workshop and learn this new technique and not have to deal with my own emotional intelligence, mm. my own feelings and how I manage them and my own behavior and how that impacts the feelings of other people. If I can't. So so for me, the two like fundamental mental models for people is the, fem, the mental model of family systems. Mm. And for organization is organizations, the learning organization that Peter Gay does is the five disciplines that help people learn to learn together. Mm. And I just see the world through those two filters mm. like blinking or breathing. Yeah. Yeah. So there was a there's a loop to close, I think, which is so going back to this possibility of an organization where there's shared commitment, something happens, the leader intervenes right in some default autopilot way. How does like can you kind of tell me concretely how understanding my family system how can that impact that uh, sort of automatic way of oh, responding? That's a great question. I'm, I can't believe I didn't, I didn't do that. So in the work we do, is go back to the idea of chronic anxiety. Mm-hmm. And we use some shorthand language to talk about your first formation. Okay. In your first, mostly your first five years, but in your first 12 to 18 years, you lived in a family system. You lived in some kind of a formational system. And when chronic anxiety came up, you learned a set of behaviors about how to be safe in that context. Mm -hmm. And so I grew up in home with a really great dad who had a lot of trauma in his childhood that hadn't been processed Mm. because we didn't know what trauma was back then. Mm. And while on the one hand, he was really a great guy. On the other hand, when his trauma got triggered, our home could be a very dangerous place to live in. Mm. And so from my earliest memories, I can, my first formation has me seeing the male authority figure in my life as a dangerous guy. And so what I, my habits were when I come into a room that he's in, I stand on the edge of the room. I read the temperature of the room to see if it's safe to come in. I um, I don't ask for what I need. I don't do anything to draw attention to myself because that can always go south. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And those are just like – and 
I'm here. So, right, those worked. <laughs> those strategies worked for me mm-hmm. to, to, to the degree that I became an adult. They were effective in they some were effective. way, right? And so, like, the most clear story that I have of learning to see my first formation, this pastor that I told he could stick his job up his, up, up his ass, <laughs> stick my job up his ass, <laughs> this same guy, I'd been on the job about three or four weeks, and he said to me one day, what's going on between you and Bob? And I said, no, I don't know. Nothing that I know of. Why? And he said, well, you know, I've just noticed about you that you're a really gregarious guy. When people walk in the room, you move toward them. You shake their hands. You hug their necks. Hmm. You remember things they've told you. You ask about their family or their work. You're just really a curious, gregarious, engaging guy. But when Bob walks in the room, you stand still. Hmm. Really? Completely unaware of that. Hmm. He said, and if Bob moves toward you very quickly, you back up. Hmm. You are kidding me! <laughs> like if you if you people can't see your face right now, but the the look of disbelief on your face right. is just like confusion. Like, like this can't be true. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, so what happened was something moved from my unconscious to my consciousness, yeah. and all of a sudden I could begin to look at it. And what here's what I began to discover with my my leader's help. I began to recognize that Bob was. 6'2", like my dad was, weighed about 220 like my dad did, was bald in the center of his head like Mm. my dad was, was an introvert like my dad was. Mm. I'd been there three or four weeks. He was on the search committee that called me. I'd been around. He had 14 age kids, pretty strict with his kids. I'd watch that happen. Your brain can't always tell the difference between a real threat, a perceived threat. And what was my brain? Here's how your brain works. When you begin to feel threatened before you even realize you're being threatened, your brain has already gotten into action saying, oh, there's a threat here. Let's look back to our past to see how we've dealt with this Mm -hmm. and we're going to get you into action by pouring chemicals and hormones into your body to get you to do what you've always done and what i've always done is stood still backed up not had you know not tried to call attention to myself my brain was going alert 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 this is a guy like your dad yeah uh, and, and, and so your listeners can't see me, but like that was back, I've got my hand behind my head. Mm. That was back here. It was having real impact on me, Mm. but I couldn't see it. It was just like, this was just autopilot behavior. Yeah. Like a blind spot. Right. And when uh, Preston, the leader called it around here where I could see it, I began to work on this Mm. and I actually was able, Bob became a good friend. I was actually able to change my behavior, Mm. but I was able to change it because I was able to see it. Mm -hmm. And so everybody has a first formation mm. and i'd like a, a way to really get access to that is just simply to ask the question when relationships became unsafe mm. when anxiety showed up what did you do and in, in the family systems world they would offer four categories it helped me because they weren't like normal way of thinking about this stuff but but the categories are conflict distance over under function or projection okay and so what i might do is conflict like I might fight, I might, uh, on the mild end, that's like, no, I'm right and you're wrong. And, uh, and that's on, that. <laughs> right. And on the intense end, it could be hitting or throwing or cursing or whatever. Mm-hmm. Distance could be the actual opposite of that. Internally, I shut down. I might move uh, move away from you. I might move out of the room. I might move out of the relationship. Projection, I mean, over-functioning is you're unhappy and I'm going to take responsibility for your happiness. Mm. So you're under-functioning and I'm over-functioning. Projection is I get anxious with you and I go tell somebody else about that. Mm. And 
the, the work that I've done and that I do with clients is to help them see their first formation, to ask the question, when you got anxious, what did you do? And what's true for all of us is what we did became habitual. Mm-hmm. However we did it, whatever we did, it became habitual. And the work of adult life is, first of all, to be able to see that. Not like that's bad. You survive. You're here. Mm-hmm. So those were effective strategies for staying alive. Mm-hmm. But if you engage those same behaviors as an adult, it's going to be like you've got a six-year-old kid running your life or an eight-year-old kid running your life. And so there is some work not only to see your autopilot. This is where I wish I could just read a book. I say to clients all the time, so we'll talk about what their autopilot is and talk about how they'd like to change that. And I'll say, and if we could just have that conversation, if you'd say, oh, okay, I'll start doing this and I'll quit doing that. Well, we'd all be transformed. But the truth is that that the autopilot is really, really powerful. Mm. And even making it visible is is an important – our next podcast that Trish and I do is about this, Mm. making it visible and then having some practices for disrupting the old behavior and developing some new habits Mm. that are more adult habits for how you want to show up when Mm. you show up when Mm. you get anxious. Yeah, the thing I'm I'm present to is how – deeply ingrained uh, stuff is yes um not to bring like any doom and gloom to it or anything yeah, or no shame or judgment right but just to i mean a part of the why like tips and techniques don't work right is you can have all of the knowledge and all of the tips and techniques but if if you have these deeply ingrained things which we all have yeah interrupting old patterns is I don't know, to call it a crapshoot is the, yeah. <laughs> the right thing, but uh, it really takes something. Yeah. The way I say it is that I, I can get the tips and techniques, mm. and, and they're actually very effective as long as the relationship is stable. But when anxiety shows up, right. they go out the window. Yeah. And every leader can deal with a little bit of anxiety, and every leader has a tipping point. Mm. So I've been working on this a long, long time, and a couple of years ago, I had the most intense conflict with a colleague that I'd ever had. I got Mm. a call and then an email saying, I'm so pissed off at you that I can't even think about going to lunch with you tomorrow. Mm. Of course, my defensiveness is out the wazoo. Mm. And he said, I'm going to calm down and tell you why. I got a three-page letter telling me why he was angry at me. And like, you know, 20 years ago, I would have written him off. I would have I would have found some way to cut the relationship off or I would have just been really superficial and nice. Mm. But all of the pain and frustration of that would have been in the space of our relationships. And what I did instead was I wrote back to him. So I I started to read the email and I closed my computer before I got through about three sentences because I was really stirred up. Mm. And then I finally read the email and then I went on the deck of the back of the house and I read it out loud where I really slowed my brain down. Mm. And then what I did was I wrote an email to him saying, I want to make sure that I'm hearing what you're saying. Mm. It was brilliant. Now, mm. I wish that I could say that I was brilliant all the time. <laughs> but it, but I was <laughs> awesome then. It was amazing. And <laughs> what I would say is that was 20 years of practice, yeah. right? Yeah. Like, oh my you gosh. Know, and he wrote back and said, 90% right, 10%, you missed this. Oh, wow. And then we had a conversation face to face that was just 
foundationally different than it would have been mm-hmm. if I hadn't done that kind of deep listening. And mm-hmm. so, yeah, so it's just, a, it's, a, it, it's not like a one and done deal. It's not mm-hmm. like you can go to a, 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 you know, a six-week course or a one, go to Rice University like you are right now and get a, you know, one-year program. As yeah. important as that is, yeah. Yeah, this yeah. is just lifelong. I say to people all the time, at 70 years of age, almost 70 years of age, I can still get triggered. It's true is I recognize that I'm triggered way sooner yeah. rather than it be in a day or a week or a month, I, I can I can see it almost immediately, and I'm more of a master of the tools that I've been working on mm. for dealing with that than I've ever been. Yeah, but I can still not be my best self. I yeah. can still get triggered and have my anxiety have me revert to my first formation. That's just a part of what it means to be human. Yeah. Well, and you can hear in that example with the email that it was. It's not like either you're on or you're not, right? right? You were in the presence of reaction. I didn't sleep for two nights. (laughs) Yeah. And you took some really effective action. Right. Right. Like that reading the email out loud is brilliant. Right. right? I love that. I'm going to steal that. It's like (laughs) actually getting the words present. Right. So this transitions perfectly to sort of the theme that I proposed for today, listening. I want to say one thing to you and, you know, to everybody is, um, you know, there's the obvious benefit to this kind of work for leaders and Mm -hmm. sort of the difference that that can empower you to make. For any parents that are out there, Mm -hmm. I'll say there's a, oh, I'm going to cry. There's a contribution that that can be to your kids. I remember really clearly, this was probably 10 years ago, I was in, I had done a landmark weekend, which I've Mm done decades of that now. And I, had seen something in the weekend about my first formation mm-hmm. and sort of the our family systems. And mm-hmm. I, I came to you and I, you know, I wasn't, you know, sometimes at Landmark, they send you to the people in your life and they say, go, go have, you know, right, right. restorative conversations with them. And that really wasn't what I was doing. I was really just kind of like sharing what I learned, which was I said to you, I said, you know, I saw this weekend that growing up in our family, y'all did a really great job of letting us be sad and scared. And I always felt really okay being that way. And is it and what I saw was is that for me it never felt okay to be angry. Mm. Um like that was a go to your room emotion. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> well, and that was that was the your response and I just I have such a clear memory of of you going yeah you know, if I could go back and do any part of our parenting again, it would be to provide more space for that. Right, right. And that, like, handled that for me, mm. right? Like, in the instant. Now, I still had my own work to do to be able to express anger and to do that in a healthy way and da-da-da-da-da. But the, to kind of have that resolved in that very simple way within our family system kind of freed me up to go and play around with it, if you will, out in the world. So I'm just saying, you know, if you kind of uh, people who are listening to this may, you know, get confronted by just thinking about beginning doing this work, thinking about like engaging in it and what that would mean and what that would take. And, yeah. you know, if the buy-in, if it's not, you know, if if you are committed to being a great leader, 
Yes, do this, right? right. If you're kind of on the fence about being a great leader, but you're a parent, there's um, just something really extraordinary that this can provide for your kids. So. Yeah, I remember that conversation. And I look back and realize that, so, you know, there are five of y'all, four of you who grew up in our home. Mm-hmm. And I say to your oldest sister, I've said to her on more than one occasion, you ought to get combat pay for what we learned <laughs> about being a parent as we were raising you. Because as she was young, I was just learning this stuff. Yeah. And, you know, and it wasn't like I learned You're it like overnight. Amateur. Right, exactly. <laughs> and so the good news is, is that um, I think parents wake up, most parents wake up most days saying, we're going to do the best we can. Yeah. And the good news is that in adult life, you get a chance to revisit some of that stuff yeah. and do the work that yeah. needs to be done. And, yeah. and I think all of my kids are doing a way better job with this at the stage of life y'all are in than mm. I did, mm. in part because I was a learner as you went along. You've been a learner as you go along. Mm. And it's you're right. It's really powerful for families to be able to do this work Hmm. for the parents to do this work yeah yeah okay listening yeah i sent you a list of possible themes for this conversation and you that was your number one choice Mm -hmm. why actually hold on wait first i want to say something first so i think it's worth saying that I, so the first time I ever took a class about listening, I remember very clearly the instructor saying something about, okay, da, 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 we're going to talk about listening and the way humans listen. And immediately my thought was, oh, this part isn't for me. I'm a good listener. <laughs> <laughs> Not. Right. Yeah. And which, which just want to yeah. kind of like point out to the listener, right, is like people know or maybe think they – there's like a percentage of people that I come across who would come across – who say to me, they're like, I know I'm not a good listener, right? right. But I think like to a very large degree, people – don't know and they don't know that they don't know the places where they don't listen. So I just want to kind of for again for the listener to bring that into their space so that maybe in this conversation they can right. discover something hear something that they've never heard before. Well, I would tie that what you just said to the previous part of the conversation, even somebody who is a good listener Anxiety is a, a, the primary force that disrupts listening. And so, like, I've learned some basic skills about b- being a good listener. Mm. And then that goes away when the anxiety in the relationship yeah. gets intense enough. And so if you already have some skills around listening, then where the real work is, is to become a better listener the more intense the anxiety is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. great. So you did send me an email saying, here's 10 topics we can talk about. I chose listening. I think probably because it's the most important leadership skill of, of all the things that I had to learn. Like it's been front and center for me. Mm. I've already told some of the stories about that. Julia's saying to me that I that I didn't listen to other people. I couldn't see what the impact of my behavior was. And part of that was because I wasn't listening. When I was when I was about 36, Peter Stephen Covey wrote his book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Mm-hmm. And that's a story that I won't tell, but I became a facilitator for them. They do that in the business world, but but I became a facilitator for doing that in the nonprofit world. They offered it at a way, way to reduce cost mm-hmm. in the nonprofit world. Mm-hmm. And I probably did, I don't know, 20 or 25 seminars where I facilitated, and he's on the video screen. He does the teaching. I facilitate. 
here's the solitude time, come back and do the conversation, all of that. And he's the one who really first said to me what you just said a minute ago. You think you're a good listener, and you may have some listening skills, Mm. but there's way more to learn about that than what most of us know. And Mm. and he, you know, asserts that where we've all taken classes in in writing and reading and maybe public speaking, very few of us, at least at that point in time, had ever done a class in listening. And so just some of the things that he did were very helpful to me where he talked about the difference in autobiographical listening – and which is his phrase for I'm not actually listening to understand, but I'm listening to respond. Mm-hmm. So I'm listening to how does what you're saying give me an entree to talk about me. Mm-hmm. And it was like, holy moly, mm. <laughs> I do that all the time. Mm. And so, so he introduced me to two things. And again, I remember I'm 35 years old. Mm. He introduced me to the idea that just because I understand the words doesn't understand doesn't mean that I've understand what you've conveyed to me. Mm. Uh, so the difference in dissemination of information, I've put this out there, mm. and communication, mm. you know, the kind of the stereotypical. So what I hear you saying is learning to do that was a critical piece. And today, you know, we laugh at what I hear what I hear you saying. But I mean, when I'm coaching, I will say to people on a regular basis, I want to make sure I got it. Yeah. Let me see if I can say that back to you. I'm not that was you said a lot of stuff there that seemed really complex. So I just want to make sure that I'm listening well. I'll do, you know, a, a, a variety of versions of that. So oh so one of the things that he introduced me to was just like just because you understand the words doesn't mean that you that you've understood the meaning and mm-hmm. that there's actually work to be done. And in the early stages of my experience, I started trying to practice that. And it was like, holy moly, nobody ever says, yeah, you got it. It was, no, that's not quite it. Your your <clears throat> mom and I, about that time, were on a marriage enrichment retreat, and the leader had us working on communication. And they said, what we want you to do is go out on the grounds and take a recent conflict you've had, like not a knockdown drag out, but some conflict that you've had. And the goal is for one of you to say, here's how I experienced this. And the other person has to say back to you, here's what I hear you saying. And then you reverse the roles. And he said, and we had an hour and I'm thinking, an hour. We'll do this in 10 minutes and go have sex and then come back to this deal. <laughs> about, we're about 27, 28 years old. And, and so... You were still having sex. Uh, we were still You're having not, sex. Yeah, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so in that first exercise, Betty went first and she said, blah, blah, blah. And I said, here's what I hear you say. And, and it took seven times mm. before she would sign off on, yeah, you understand what I'm mm. saying. Like. Mm. I was just astounded by that. Mm. I'm a smart guy. I'm an articulate guy. I, you know, I hear well. At that point in my life, I heard you well. You were wearing hearing aids, yeah. <laughs> uh, and so, yeah. So that 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 was a part of what he did for me. Do you, I know this was a while ago, but do you remember what you were getting wrong, like or or like what you were missing? I mean, maybe not the specific content, but what was happening? Uh, I don't remember. Okay. I don't remember. Okay. What I what what I would imagine was that I wasn't getting to the second thing that uh that you want to say now that I want to say now. Uh-huh. So on the one hand, being clear about the message, but the really powerful thing for me was then to say so once you get clear about what the message is, mm-hmm. that a part of what you've got to do is you've got to begin to ask. And so what are the emotions mm-hmm. that go with mm-hmm. that? Mm-hmm. And and so you know. Somebody might say to me, I was annoyed. Mm. And so does that mean that they're angry? Mm. Does that mean that they're 
sad? Does that mean mm. that they're scared? Mm. And and feelings occur on a continuum. Like if there's a pot boiling over on the stove, you take one action. If they're, if the house is on fire and there are flames coming out of the roof, you take another action. Mm. And so what's the intensity of all mm. that? Mm. And he was the one who, who put me onto that, which tied back then to my own learning about I can't know what's going on with you until I know what's going on with me. I will never forget when my therapist helped me realize that one of the dominant emotions for me, interesting that you said what you did a minute ago, that the dominant emotion for me is anger. Mm. I'll never forget that as I began to get access to that, had some cathartic moments where I grieved that and where I kind of vomited some of my anger, you know, in 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 an intensive kind of way, all of a sudden it was like, holy moly, Everybody around me is angry. I can see it everywhere mm. where before mm. I couldn't see because I, because it was hidden from me. And so that whole second thing, uh, being clear about what's being communicated and then what's under that, those were critical. Uh, what are the feelings that are under that? Those are critical skills. And I can just look back and see from that point in my journey forward that if you were going to ask me, what's the one secret to your effectiveness? Mm. I would say learning to listen mm. is you know, like would be the top of the list. Mm. Yeah. And I don't know if you've used this language yet, but is is specifically deep listening. Deep listening, yeah. And yeah. and I don't know the the phrase listening isn't what you think it is. <laughs> right? Like is is kind of what's what what I hear in that is you know, you you could be understanding, getting all of the words that they're saying and right. being able to sort of put that together in a right. way that is coherent. But for a human to actually feel heard, there's like a multidimensional experience happening over there. And that's all got to right. get gotten right. in some way. Right. So deep listening is like the goal of deep listening is that I want to see the world the way you see the world mm. as much as that's possible. Mm. I was, I was, doing a conference just like three weeks ago for a group here in the third ward. And they asked me to, I spent the whole day teaching about listening and we were doing a group session where this woman was saying, so I have my son who is a senior in high school and he needs to be able to fill out his college applications, blah, blah, blah. And she said, I'm doing everything I can to listen to him and he just won't do the work. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) And so we, we, toyed around with that a little bit. And I said, so what is your goal here? She Mm. said, to get him to do the work. Mm. I said, Mm. okay, so that's not deep listening. Yeah. Deep listening would be what is going on in his world that he's not doing the work? Mm. How does he, what, how does he experience the filling out of a college application or what is it about all of that that has him stuck or stopped? So often what happens is we listen enough that we can say, ah, here's the opening for me to get like, oh, okay, now I can get you to go where I want you to go. Mm. One of the things that Covey said that was that is foundational for me, he says, when you do deep listening, your view of the world will change. Mm. And I didn't get that at first, but the more I've practiced this, the more, it, like, if I can see that the way that I'm showing up in the world is creating anxiety in your life. That gives me access to something that I don't have. Mm-hmm. This guy who lived with us, I won't call his name because he's well-known here in Houston, mm-hmm. but he lived with us for about four years. And in the early days of him living with us, Betty came home one day and he said, Jim yelled at me today. 
And later, Betty, we ran into each other, and, and she laughed, and she says, so I hear you yelled at him today. Well, it might have been possible that I yelled at him, so she was in part being curious, did you yell at him? But the other part was she was pretty sure that there was something going on with him. And all I had done was just communicated really directly with him. Mm. And and so she gave me that feedback, and so I waited till the next day till things had kind of calmed down, and I just listened really deeply to what that experience was like for him. And what he did was he said, you know, first of all, you're an authority, and, and he wasn't a very sophisticated communicator at this time. But here's right. what I heard: right. you're an authority figure in my life, and authority figures have been dangerous from the get-go for me. Yeah. And he said, when you, he said, I don't know if you remember, but you kind of pointed your finger at mm. me and you said really directly, here is what we've got to do. Mm. And it was like, and so I was able to say back, and that must have been terrifying for you. And he mm. teared up. Mm. Mm. And I, I apologized. Mm. And I said, I had no idea that my communication would have impacted you in that way. And back to Covey's deal of the world changes for you. So all of a sudden, this this young man that I love and care about who's living in my home, I can begin to see that my behavior impacts him in a way and I don't. I didn't wake up that morning saying, "I hope I can scare him." Yeah, right. <clears throat> and so the deep listening it changed the world for me, and I began to work on communicating with him about everything that I, you know, everything that I did with him in a different kind of way. Mm-hmm. Uh, because my world was changed by being able to see the world the way that he sees the world. Mm-hmm. That's what the deep listening stuff does. Uh, a couple of homework exercises that we give people when we do this work. Mm-hmm. One of them is to just go to people. And ask three people that you really trust, how can you tell when I'm really listening to you? And how can you not tell? Mm. Like, how can you tell that I'm not? not yeah. First time I ever did this, I think it was just my daughter, mm-hmm. Emily, mm-hmm. who said, I can tell because if I come in and want to talk to you and you're looking at your computer, you keep looking at your computer, you're not listening to me. Mm-hmm. If you close your computer and look at me, then I know you're listening mm-hmm. to me. The other homework assignment that we give people is get in a conversation with someone when they start talking about something. And before you give any opinion that you have or inject anything about yourself, ask three good questions. Mm, mm. And then and then with this caveat, don't you think that is not a question? (laughs) (laughs) Right. When we're training coaches. We'll do an exercise where for 15, we'll, we'll say, take five minutes and have somebody tell you about something that came up in their work that created some anxiety or stress. And then the the other person in the in the dyad has 10 minutes where all you can do is ask questions for 10 minutes. Mm. And then you debrief that. And the ones who are asking the questions say, ah, that was just an incredibly hard assignment. You know, mm. after two mm. or three or four or five questions, it was like, I don't know what else to ask. Mm. And so all of that is that's that's been a lifelong journey for me. And and even even now, I was in Grand Rapids where Trish and I were doing some work and mm. we had a team of folks that we were meeting with and uh, we we're on the plane coming home. And she said, so did you notice how the anxiety went up in the room when you said yada, yada, yada? And I said, the anxiety went up in the room. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, like so all of these pieces and parts. The, the presence of anxiety, the deep listening, the compliance to commitment. I mean, all of these are like come it, together. They come sure. together and they're like they're like moving parts of a mobile. Mm. Right. And you can do deep listening here. You can do anxiety here and, and you can tip the, the mobile at the point of, of deep listening and anxiety shows up. Or you can it's, it's all it's all connected. Everything's connected to everything else. But it's helpful to kind of separate them out to say, I'm going to work on this piece 
and then begin to see how does this piece interact with all the other pieces mm. of, of leadership. Mm. There's a like an access point to deep listening that I got a couple of years ago from this book. I forget the author's name, but it's um it's called The Collaborative Way and mm. they have a whole chapter on what they call generous listening, yeah. which you can hear in sure, in the world sure. of deep listening there is an exactly. energy of generosity to it. And one of the things that they say is that generous listening is listening with a willingness to be impacted by what the speaker is right, saying. Right. Which I thought was really good. It's like cuz when you say when you say like you know, to see the the world the way that person sees the world, you know, f for me, that feels like a big ask. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's like, okay. Well, so what? I added a phrase that said, uh, as much as you can. As much as you can. Yes. Yeah. As much as you can. Right. And, and, and I feel like, but I f do feel like that's like a ticket in is like, like, are you willing to be impacted? Right. By. Right. By like, that's just like minimal, you know, if you want the lowest barrier to entry. <laughs> right. And then the other thing, and this, well, I'll just say the other thing is there's something that's so paradoxical about this, which is there really is a superpower that becomes available in the mastery of listening. And like you said, with the woman and her senior in high school son, right. it's like you got to like, I don't know. It's like you got to use it for good and not evil. <laughs> <laughs> right. And like what I don't know. How do you describe that? Right. Like the what you think the impact and the outcome of your listening is going to be might not be it. Right. Like. Yeah, I mean, that's so unpredictable. Yeah. Right? I mean, if I could predict what the outcome would be of me seeing the world, you see the world, the way you see the world, I wouldn't need to listen deeply to you. I mm. already know what that is. Mm. Mm. And so there is a kind of a risk that says, I listen deeply, I begin to see the world the way you see the world. It changes me. I don't like, and so what does that mean? I think there is a risk in deep listening. And, and for me, what that triggers is one of the qualities that I have worked a lot over my lifetime to cultivate is the quality of humility, mm. right? Like I can, I can risk knowing and not knowing where that's going to go mm. in part because I don't see everything. I don't mm. know everything. Mm. I don't have all the, like I've got blind spots. I need help. Mm. And, and so that, that quality of humility makes like opens up something where, so I may get changed in a way that I didn't know was going to happen, mm. but it's going to make me stronger. It's going to make us better. Yeah. Do you have language that you use for, so one of the ways I talk about that is, is listening with an agenda, like an agenda, like an ulterior motive versus like listening with some bigger commitment. Uh, do you have some way that you talk about that or think about that? And if not, you can just use that. You're yeah, no, I, I, I like that language. Mm. I think that that there's a place for both of those, mm. right? Like we're working on a common objective. We're working on a common direction that we're trying to go and we're stuck. And, and so I'm going to do some deep listening to find out where we're stuck, what's mm. going on. Mm. And then what that does is it gives me access to a collaborative 
So then what do we do to move forward Mm -hmm. in a way that if I don't do the deep listening? And so I think what it means, I'm kind of thinking out loud here, I think what it means is that I set the big agenda aside. Mm. When I was working at MD Anderson as a chaplain, one of the things that they taught you was that when you're working with a patient, that you can get triggered. You can have stuff that will come up for you that will stir you up. And what they taught you was bracketing. And they said, what you do is you just put a bracket around that Mm -hmm. and say, I'm going to stay really present to this deep listening conversation and bracket this thing. And I'll come back to that with my supervisor. I'll come back to that with with somebody who's not here. So sometimes we've got this big agenda that we're working on. And there may be something in the deep listening that like, whoa, whoa, if, if... If what you're saying is true, then that has this and this and this implications of the big thing that we're after. Mm. I set that aside so that I stay in the deep listening. And then I come back and I have those conversations, right? I have Mm. the conversations about. So seeing what you see and seeing what we're working on, the deep listening has stirred up these questions for me. Mm. Doesn't mean you don't do those, but you, you kind of separate the, the task. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 That's great. Yeah. What is one thing that people get wrong about listening? My partner, Tricia, says regularly when we're teaching this stuff that most people listen somewhere from three to nine seconds and they think, ah, got it. Mm. That's what the research shows. And so I think one of the things we get wrong is that that we can get it quickly. It's the reason for asking three questions, Mm. right? Is it like I form an opinion about what you've said in the first three to nine seconds? I think I've gotten what you've said, Mm. and that's almost never true. Mm. (laughs) And Mm. so having some kind of discipline that says I'm going to ask three questions before I, you know, move ahead. What do we get wrong? That we think we've heard what's being said before we actually hear what's being said. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's so good. Yeah. Good. Okay, we're going to do some rapid-fire ones. I don't know if these will be any good or not, but okay. we'll, we'll just try it. These, some of these might be dead ends. So are you saying don't give short answers, don't don't be so wordy? No, no, I just <laughs> – some of these are might be have interesting answers and they might not. So the first one is, is what should I have asked you that I didn't? Yeah, I always love that question. I don't – nothing comes to mind for uh, me. I think we – This is pretty good. It's been a great conversation. Yeah, it's yeah. covered a lot of the bases. Yeah. This is what – I mean, I, all the stories you've shared and the knowledge and just everything like that is, is exactly what I good. was hoping to get. Thanks. So um, if you could turn back time and talk to your 18-year-old self, mm-hmm. what would you tell him? 18. I would say that your ambition mm. – that there, that that's a good thing, and mm. that you're gonna you're gonna see that lived into, mm. and that it's you're gonna there's gonna be a lot of good painful learning that's gonna be required mm. in order in order for you to get there. Just like a heads up, a heads up, right? <laughs> it's coming, and you're gonna survive it. It's gonna be okay, but this is what it takes. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Okay, then this one I stole from one of my fi- favorite podcasters, Tim Ferriss. He yeah. asks his guest a lot. If you could put one message on a billboard, like on the I-10 corridor in West Houston, what would you what would you mm, put on? Maybe just a, the what out of this podcast. Listen mm. with the exclamation point. <laughs> that's great. In big bold letters, right, exactly <laughs> underlined and in italics. That's great. That's great. Okay, cool. Well, thank you. This is huge for me. I knew you were the perfect I'm first so guest. I'm um, about to, your podcast. Yeah, thank you. Thank and, you so uh, much. That's great. Um, so where can people find you all online? 
Yeah, so we do individual uh, coaching and consulting for organizations, uh, both in the for-profit world and the not-for-profit world. Our website is theleadersjourney.us. You can find us there, and you can find me on Facebook under the name Jim Harrington. We do a podcast twice a month, and in 2023, we're dedicating the entire year to practices that help people grow their emotional intelligence. That's a huge topic in the leadership world, and it's a huge need in both individuals and organizations, and so we're dedicating the whole year to uh, just a whole series of practices about how to grow your emotional intelligence. We've just released a resource called Better Together. It's a five-part series with a discussion guide, and it is designed to help men and women learn how to maximize the differences and the strengths that they bring by working together. Trish and I both have a deeply held conviction that it's actually in the design of the universe for men and women to work together, that we're different and yet we have many things in common. It's a five-part series that focus on communication across differences, supporting each other, boundaries. Those are just some of the topics. And what we do is out of 20 years of, of us working together, for each topic, we have a 30 to 40-minute podcast where we just talk about how we've navigated those waters ourselves. And then there's a discussion guide where if you're going to do this with someone else, with a, what we really encourage is where there are teams of men and women working together, that they would li individually listen to the podcast and then see the discussion questions and come back and discuss what they're learning from that and how that could be useful in their particular context. So uh, better together, you can go to our website, and I think there's a button right at the top of our homepage that you can click on and get access to that. Yeah, that's some of what we do. Yeah, so there's like a self-led option. Yep. There's a one-on-one -on -one coaching option, and then right. like a, a sort of consulting exactly. Group option as exactly. well. Exactly. So, cool. Yeah. Any any final words? Anything you want to leave people with? Uh, I'm so proud of you. Thanks. And really excited to see where this podcast is going to go for you. Awesome. Thanks, Dad. All right, y'all. Nathan here. One more time. Thank you so much for listening. I hope this episode was valuable for you and really worth your time. If you'd like to get more inspiring content to empower you as a leader like this, please sign up for my bi-monthly newsletter by clicking the link in the show notes. You can also find me on LinkedIn by typing Nathan Harrington Coaching in the search bar. Also, if you enjoyed this episode, please go and review it on whatever platform you listen to your podcast. Additionally, if you wouldn't mind, share this episode with one or two people in your life that you think it might make a difference for. Believe it or not, this type of thing really does make a difference for entrepreneurs like myself. Thanks again for being here, and I'll see you again next time for Listening to Leaders. <laughs>